very significant what God uses in our lives to get our attention. I think one thing that you will conclude by the end of the seminar, if you haven't already, is that from God's point of view, it is not nearly as important what God uses to get our attention as it is that you and I discern what he's trying to teach us through the experiences we went through. And I believe God is surprised that we haven't seen his hand in all the people around our lives. He says in 1 John 4.21, How can a man say he loves God whom he hasn't seen if he hates his brother whom he has seen? You and I have one of two ways to respond to what happens to us in our lives. And I'm talking primarily about the situations over which we have no control. If we had control over the situation and we didn't take care of it, if the tire is flat and you don't fix it, you can sit there and pray to God for a miracle the rest of your life and the tire won't get fixed. Because God's already gave, given us the resources and the wherewithal to correct the problem. But we find ourselves in situations over which we have no immediate control and God attaches special significance to those situations, and it's like the grain of sand in your eye if you react to it. If you react to an irritation, what's your first tendency when you get sand in your eye? Rub it. How many times has your mother said, don't rub your eye, go wash it out? Don't rub it. But it itches so bad, it just really feels better to itch it. Rub it, doesn't it? Well, if we just keep on reacting like that, we can hurt the eye. It could get infected. You could ultimately lose the sight of the eye. But God likens these irritations in our lives like a grain of sand in an oyster. The more the irritation, what? Bigger the pearl. He calls us his jewels in Malachi chapter 3. We are his precious jewels. And a lot of us are jewels in the rough. You ever seen an uncut diamond, uncut jewel? Brazil is known for its semi-precious stones. You can see these big hunks of nothing. And you see what they do with them. And it takes all kinds of chipping and polishing to bring the brilliance out in that stone. And this is what God is seeking to do in our lives. He's seeking to take these tools, as it were, which are the people and the circumstances around our lives to chip away at those rough surfaces. The basic objective of cutting a stone is so that no matter from what angle you observe it, the inner light is refracted through all of those different sides. And that's what Jesus Christ wants with our life. No matter from what angle men view our lives, they see Jesus Christ reflected from within. And it doesn't all happen by a decision. God starts working. Weakest area first, keeps on chipping. All of a sudden, you get to that conclusion, hey, I think I can handle this thing. I've made that fatal mistake twice, where I inwardly, I really said to myself, you know what? I really can't think of anything that could happen to ever make me mad. Because I just knew what anger was related to. I knew what principle was involved. I, Lord, I'm willing to do that. I said the same thing about bitterness. I, Lord, because I know that offenses is by your design to show love to somebody, I am telling you right now ahead of time that no matter who offends me, I'm willing to forgive them and you can count on me. Nothing but real pride there. Well, all God has to do when he starts getting a little smart like that is he just brings a circumstance into your life that is about one sixty-fourth of an inch outside your perspective. And all of a sudden, those circumstances get a lot bigger than God. You feel like you're closed in. Where am I going? How many of you here have ever asked for patience? Yeah, I did once. <laughs> what comes? Tribulation. Have you ever asked for faith? You know what comes if you ask for faith? God puts you into a situation that humanly speaking is absolutely impossible and dark and hopeless and abandoned. There's no way out. I mean, that's it. 
and he just takes you right on through the darkness, and he'll bring you to a point where you come to a decision, I'm either getting out of this thing and running and forget it all, or God, I am hanging on in the darkness, I can't see where I'm going. You say the darkness is as light to you, and I'm hanging on for dear life, and if you don't bring me through this treacherous valley or these pitfalls, I am a goner. And God will take a man to that point. In fact, I believe that's one of the most fundamental points God has to establish a man. I believe it took him four years in my Christian life before I came to that point. I went off to seminary saying, now God, you've got to give me faith. Because I had uh, tried to work in a factory the previous summer and tried to share Christ with these guys, and they weren't interested They'd ask me a question. I wanted to be broad-minded. I didn't want to superimpose my ideas on them. So they'd ask me a question. I'd say, well, now, there are three basic uh, positions on this thing. And these guys are saying, how come you're so critical? Man, all I do is ask you a simple question. You give me this all this great big long explanation about everything. And finally, I'm saying to myself, if I can't make it work here, no way is this guy going to get up in the pulpit and spend his whole life behind this little machine here and say Jesus Christ is the answer if he doesn't work in the factory. That's where everybody's living. So I went to seminary saying, you've got to give me faith, Lord. I've got to see you really work. Well, we went down to seminary. God opened the door as wide as he could open it. No question. There we go. We get to seminary, and we discover the week after we're there that Carol's expecting our first child. Second thing that was happening simultaneously is God was ushering in the recession of 1960, which I felt to this day it was because of me. <laughs> I couldn't get a job anywhere. I, I had my name in at every employment agency trying to land a job. I couldn't get a job. Other guys were in the same strait. I finally landed a job for $13 a month. And our fixed expenses were $144 a month. Now, at the time, Carol and I were reading Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secrets. How many of you ever read of Spiritual Secrets? Great book. Hudson Taylor believed that you never have to ask man for money. He's back in the boonies of China, no communication. If I have a need, I'll ask God. You can always work on the emotions of people and get something out of them. But how do I know that that wasn't my gimmick instead of God acting? And so I'm going to ask God, and when it's provided, I know God ordained it. He says, Lord, next year I need 100 missionaries, $55,000, and make them in big gifts because I don't have time to receive all those $1 contributions. The next year, 104 missionaries, $60,000, and 11 gifts. And it just goes on and on and on like that. It's a great little book to read. Get it in a paperback. So we decided... Let's not tell a soul. Let's not tell your folks, my folks, no one. And let's just tell the Lord. And I started logging all this in a diary. Lord, I'm going to go through this thing with you. I'm going to trust you. My diary starts out like this. Praise God. You're wonderful. You're loving kindness. Beautiful. I went for a whole week with that attitude. And the bills started coming in. And I started panicking inside. And all of a sudden, I start falling apart and completely disintegrate. I'm praying to God, I suppose we're going to have some kind of an invalid, deformed baby because I can't provide. End of the month, all our bills were paid. Boy, and then I could have kicked myself. How could I have doubted you while well, you say it right there in your word, Lord? I want you to know that I've learned the lesson Take the pressure off now, because you'll only test me above, you know, up to what I'm able. And as soon as I've learned, <laughs> learned the lesson, then you can take the pressure off. So I got it. And some of the other guys are starting to find jobs in the seminary. So I knew I just right around the corner. Well, I went 10 days the second month. And all of a sudden, I started looking at those circumstances. I know you did it once, but there's no way you do a duplicate. And I just fell apart again. By the end of the second month, all my bills are paid. I don't remember which one month, but uh, one month, two successive weeks, I got two $25 money orders from Sarah Snodgrass in Anchorage, Alaska. Now, it was postmarked in Chicago. But I never got any before, never got any after, just when I needed it. One day, Carol was going to write to her folks and my folks. She didn't have the two nickels for the stamps. 
We went out. Postman drove up. It was a trailer park. Delivered some mail. Stood there and was talking to the landlord. Carol opened up the letter, and here's two stamps from her aunt. She let them put them on the two envelopes, handed them to the guy. And just went on and on like that. Second month, I really was remorseful. I mean, you really felt, you know, what a dirty louse. God, you know, will you forgive me again for how, you know, how could I have not trusted you when you, your word is faithful? And I says, okay, Lord, listen, I believe you. No doubts about it. So take the pressure off. <clears throat> I went into the third month, and I lasted almost three weeks, and things were getting bad again, and I just collapsed, fell apart. End of the month, all my bills are paid, and then I really was at the, as low as you could get. And boy, I started, I said, Lord, this next month, I want you to know something. I am going to trust you no matter what. You can already go ahead and line me up with the big boys, Moses, Elijah, put me up on that list. <laughs> because there is no way that my faith is going to be shaken. I've got three months of diary here to prove it. And I came up to the 24th of the month, perfect peace, perfect calm. I said, now, God, you know, in three days, I need this money. The only way it ever comes is through the mail. You always pay your bills on time. See, if a bill is due and God's testing your faith, the money will always be there when the bill's due. If a bill is due and God is not provided, then God is not testing your faith. There's something else he's trying to teach you. And we'll get to that next week in finances. And so, I knew he had always been on time. The due date was the 27th. And so I said... No big problem. Went out to the mailbox the 25th. Nothing. Went out there the 26th. I got so excited. I was going to see a miracle of God take place right in front of my eyes. And just so, I was going on record ahead of time. Diary that night. God, tomorrow is victory day. Praise God. You're wonderful. I filled it with scripture. And I went out to the mailbox the next day. I couldn't wait for the guy to come. Went out there, opened the mailbox. And what? Nothing. And I looked in that box and I said, just like I thought. <laughs> and I got so mad, I said, hang this whole Christian bit I have had. If that's the kind of God I got, I got one little lousy need, and that's what he does. And I am getting out of Dallas, Texas as fast as I can get out. And I didn't have any money to get out, but I was going to get out. <laughs> and I went back in the house. Smile on the outside, burn on the inside. So I was big spiritual giant, calm smile. Well, honey, Lord didn't bring anything today. That my old mind was working. So I'm faking our devotions that night. And, I, <laughs> and we were reading uh, uh, Oswald Chambers, My Utmost for His Highest. And we were reading the, the reading for the day, and I got to the second paragraph, and it said, It has been three days since you asked God for something. Have you quit believing God? And I just started bawling right there. And Carol looked at me, what is the matter with you? And I told her, I said, I know what it is. God knows I am so stinking proud. And he wants, he's going to bankrupt me to get rid of that pride. Okay, if that's what he wants to do, he can bankrupt me. Went to the mailbox the next day. Here's a letter inside from a Harold McConnell. He had written me two weeks before from Mary in my hometown, couldn't remember who he was, but he had sent me $10 two weeks before, and I wrote him back quickly and thanked him. And anytime anybody ever sent money, you know, it was once a month. So I thought, well, this fellow wants to start corresponding. Opened the letter up, and there was a check. And as was my normal spiritual approach, I headed for the check first. <laughs> and as I was heading for the check, that was the first time the Lord had convicted me, and he said, hey, why don't you start becoming interested in who people are instead of what they have? And then I said to myself, furthermore, 10 bucks isn't going to help you out of your jam anyway. So I read his letter, didn't look at the check, went into the house, told Carol, we got a letter from this Harold McConnell again. He sent us a check. I didn't look at it, wanted to share with you, and I decided I'm going to start becoming interested in who people are. 
So I read the letter to Carol, and I held the check up, and she said, A hundred dollars? I turned around looking at her. <laughs> my Volkswagen was out there on its reserve tank. My bank payment. And so there was the 250 for the gas. Can't fill it up nowadays for that. My trailer note was $70. And the landlord didn't come the 27th for the rent. She came that afternoon for the $25. See, God was on time. He knew when it was due and when it wasn't. And so there was the 250 for the gas, the 25 for the trailer lot, the 70 for the note payment, and 250 for our food allowance for the week. And God had provided right to the penny. And you know, when that happened, I said, Lord, now I know that you are concerned about every detail of my life. And I never to this day have ever doubted that he wasn't concerned about every detail of my life. Now, I have questioned him on many occasions why he had to choose to do certain things to get through to my thick skull. Sometimes I try to let him know that I am really willing to learn without going the hard way. <laughs> but so many times, you and I don't really know what's in us. That comes back to this wilderness thing. It's to prove you and to show you what is in your heart. Most of us don't know ourselves, and God does. And these trials that he takes us through that would seem to be so grievous and so hard, it's God allowing these to happen to conform us to the image of his son because a lot of us have that uh, just like I thought tucked way on down the road. And we'd like to have the temporary relief without getting the permanent results. God wants permanent results. God plants fruit trees. God builds oak trees. And so... It is significant, the tools that God brings into my life. What are some of these tools? One of the tools, I believe, is physical deformity. Remember Paul? He had a thorn in the flesh. Bugged him so bad, he said three times he begged God to free him from it. Now, nobody knows what the thorn in the flesh is. We guess. Some say it's bad eyesight. I think the reason the Lord never told us what the thorn in the flesh is is because a lot of us have a thorn in the flesh. There are irritations in our lives that God has designed to be permanent. Most irritations are temporary for a specific objective. But if the ultimate benefit of that irritation or that handicap or whatever it is will produce far greater ultimate benefits for the purpose of God, he'll leave it there. And Paul was reacting to this, and he's saying, you know, I begged him three times to remove it from me, and then God gave him the insight from his point of view. And he said, Paul, so tremendous were the revelations that I gave you that in order to keep you from becoming absurdly conceited, I sent one of Satan's messengers to continually harass you. Because you know what? Paul was the type of guy that all the time that he was weak, he was highly dependent on the Lord. But when everything was going his way, he'd tend to forget him. Know anybody like that? That's why I keep saying, Lord, I just would love, to, I want to be real faithful to you when things are going good, too. And when Paul saw that that weakness or that deformity or that thorn in the flesh wasn't there to shorten his life, wasn't there to sidetrack him, wasn't there to inhibit him, but it was so the power of God could be demonstrated through him. He changed his whole frame of reference and he says, now I have made up my mind, I am proud of my weaknesses and I'm proud of my infirmities because now I know that my very weakness makes me strong in him. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you. Another is the natural elements. Three years of famine is a pretty tough human experience. But what did God say in Joel? I will restore to you the, the years that the locust, the palmer worm, the caterpillar, forgot the other one, throw inchworm in there, <laughs> destroyed, and here's the phrase, 
which was my great army which I sent among you. The issue wasn't that they went through the famine. The issue was that they could see what God was accomplishing. God fed Elijah in the drought. Government, Scripture says the legitimate authorities are derived of God. Whosoever resisteth the authority resisteth God, and they shall receive the condemnation. Our parents, we've talked about, other people in our lives. David said in Psalm 17, Deliver me, O Lord, from the wicked, which is thy sword, and from men of the world, which is thy hand. You see, the Lord wants you and me to effectively, and get what I'm saying here, God wants you and me to effectively relate to all the people that he's brought into our lives. Not win everyone. Jesus didn't win everyone. Did Jesus have friends? Sure he did. Did he have enemies? Sure he did. The key to having the right friends is to be willing to have the right kind of enemies. And we've got to identify the principle that Jesus operated on that determined his right friends and his right enemies. And do you know his enemies were not the lost world? The blind, the halt, the maimed? Who were Christ's enemies? Other religious people who would not buy his commitment to God. And the great majority of your enemies are not going to be the needy around you that you offer a helping hand to and you feed and you clothe and so forth. It's going to be the people who don't buy this commitment. You went to a seminar, you, you gave all that you owned to God, gave him all your property, that's fanaticism. I mean, that's just gone a little bit too far. And all of a sudden, you see, you and I are not to choose our friends. Christ condemned that. If we only greet those that greet us, what's that? The tax collectors do that, and so do the pagans. Jesus said, Blessed are you when men shall hate you and revile you and shall separate you from their company for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad because there's a great reward reserved for you in heaven. And so God wants you and me to effectively relate to all of them. If they're my enemy, what? That's the one end of the pendulum. Love them. What's the most intimate of all human relationships? Other end of the pendulum. Marriage. So from the spectrum of enemy to the spectrum of marriage... God uses the same word. Husbands, love your wives. Might be a comfort to you ladies. He never told the woman to love the husband. Women might say, how can you? <laughs> told them to do something else. Submit, submission and reverence is the expression of love from God to him through her. And so that same love is to be demonstrated to my enemy, to that most intimate relationship, the difference is in the degree of intimacy. How often do you rub shoulders with your enemy? Maybe not very often, but when you do, God wants the love of Christ reflected through you. How often do you rub shoulders with your mate? Lots. That's what makes it tougher to be consistent and loving on a regular basis. Scripture says you rebuke your friend and he'll love you. You rebuke a scorner and he'll hate you. How many marriages do you believe are on that intimate level where if a mate rebukes his mate, it produces a spontaneous love for him. Not very often. Most of us already know what our faults are. We aren't interested in being told again. Most of us don't say, Honey, I just really praise God for the insight he's given you into my weaknesses. <laughs> and sweetie, I just want to thank you for telling me I'm such a rotten husband. And it's a good basis for doing a little bit of evaluation about just where that relationship of ours does stand. Maybe we're not even at the friendship level. We think we are, but we aren't. Now, there are three wrong responses when you and I are offended or irritated by someone. Now, remember when we talked about chain of command, we talked about making the distinction between the position and the personality of a person, 
Well, this area here is dealing with how to respond to the personality situation. Got all kinds of irritable factors. Some of them are unchangeable. Some of them seem to get worse. So how, through all this experience, can the love of Christ be motivated and manifested through me? And uh, let's stand up and take a one-minute stretch, and we'll pick up from there. This principle, more than any other principle, was used of the Lord to help Carol and me rebuild our communication with each other. In fact, we sat down, and we just I just kind of started through the whole thing. I said, honey, from now on, you can count on me responding this way. If I don't respond this way, when I discover that I didn't handle it right, you can count on me coming back and making it right from now on. And I meant it, and we did it. But there are three wrong responses that are very common. Most of these frustrations come from three sources, either other people or pressures from our environment, you get caught in a traffic jam, humidity, too hot, too cold. All kinds of little irritable factors take place. Too many bugs, too many mosquitoes. That's the second source. The third source is from within yourself. Your idiosyncrasies, wish you could have done better and you didn't, and so on. But when someone accuses you of doing something wrong, our natural response is to defend ourselves. Now, you're just going to automatically defend yourself. That's why if you ask a child with, you know, the wrong way, did you do that? The answer is going to be no. Whereas if you ask, what did you do? And the child has a chance to think and answer the question. The second type of irritation is when you feel God's given you some real insight and you point an accusing finger at the other person. And unless they're real mature, they're going to defend themselves. Now, after you're married a few months, you don't have to say anything. You all know that there are different kinds of silences in the house. There's one kind that means, uh-oh, what did I do now? There's another kind that means, now what's wrong with her? And all these different intonations kind of, and they can become real, real irritable. You walk in late, and your wife decides she's not going to say anything. You just walk in, and she just uh, just glances over like that. That told the whole story, didn't it? She's waiting for an explanation. It means a whole bunch of things. If you go for a real long time and act like you really didn't notice it, of course you did. Then you might hear her say, well, that's another accusation. Well, what? And those kind of little battles can go on all day long, and it just keeps alienating and building walls and building walls, rather than responding to God. And if, that, if that's there, that accusation's there, just examine your own heart, and if you're wrong, correct it. The third type of wrong response is, you know, after a little bit of time, it just isn't worth all the hassle. I'm not going to say anything about it. So you hold it in. And that just builds up tension, and of course, then the pot blows all at once. You don't care how long you leave it boil, it's going to finally blow. And I used to be amazed at myself at what all I remembered, because I tended to hold it in. Sometimes, once I let it all blow, I'd start getting so upset that I even added some things back in that I'd already forgiven. You know, just kind of bring it all up again. And that just caused more alienation. God has a response that he wants in our lives, and it's this. To take that thought to him and to ask the Lord, am I wrong? Here comes the accusation, am I wrong? If I'm wrong, then come back and make it right with the other person. Now, what if I'm not wrong? Then give a brief explanation and keep quiet. 1 Peter 2, 18 to 25, For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience towards God suffers wrongfully. What is it if when you're buffeted for your faults, they point them out to you and you take it patiently? But what if you do well? See, you weren't wrong. You were innocent. 
and you take it patiently. This is thankworthy and acceptable with God, for even hereunto were you called, and Christ left us an example that we should follow in his steps, that when he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he was rebuked, he threatened not, but he committed himself to him that judges righteously. It was Christ bearing our sins in his body that healed you. Most Christians don't recognize that one of our callings of God is to be willing to be the sponge of another guy's hang-ups. As one fellow said to me, you know, a bitter person is a person going around this world looking for the first person that won't react to him. You know that? A bitter person, first of all, doesn't believe in anybody, doesn't trust anybody, and when they act antagonistic long enough, most everybody else reacts to them, so that proves the point. They were just holding out a little longer than most people do, but I finally got them to break, and they're just like the rest of them. But do you know when you sense that every time somebody irritates you, it's God asking you to give that guy another dose of his love? Your whole attitude toward those irritations will change. You can honestly say to that irritable guy, bring him on, Lord, I'm ready to give him another dose of your love. And you know what will happen? God will let that happen to you until that fella has gone beyond what he thinks your breaking point is. And when he finds out you're real, he's, he's come at you from all kinds of angles, and there's that solidarity, guess who he wants help from? You. And what is so beautiful about this when it says it was Christ bearing our sins in his body that healed you, you know what the next verse is? Likewise, ye wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. For if they obey not the word, you women ever sense that your husbands were wrong, really weren't doing what God wanted them to do? You tried to tell tall, dark, and handsome, and appreciated your advice, but honey, that's just not the way I want to do it. And you knew you were right. He went ahead and did it. It turned out all wrong. Now, usually what the wife does is comes back and as nice a way as possible tries to tell him, honey, I tried to tell you. And then that finishes it. But it says, likewise, ye wives. If that man is sinning or not following God, God has called that woman to bear the hang-ups of the sins of that husband in her body to submit herself to him so that if any man obeys not the word, he may be one without a word by the behavior of the wife while they behold your uh, chaste behavior coupled with fear. And we'll talk about that in the next session. So I said to Carol, from now on, if I feel like you're accusing me or I know I'm wrong, I'll come and make it right with you. And vice versa, and I'll try to be more sensitive to not keep on being such a big source of irritation to you. Try not to be so accusing. Well, this started up, went beautiful. And finally, I got the impression that my life calling was to apologize. And I started getting so irritated about that. And then I, you know, once that happens, then I thought, you know, there are some things that she's done wrong, and she really hasn't apologized, and I know she really shouldn't, she hasn't. So finally, one day, I got so irritated, I sat down and told her that. And she thought about it for a minute. Then she just explained to me from her point of view how she saw things. In other words, she felt her conscience was totally clear and kept silent. Well, any time that the one or the other explains and keeps silence, then that means that you opened your mouth too soon and started making accusations before you knew the facts, so I had to turn around and apologize again. <laughs> well, <clears throat> here are some other insights that will amplify what we're talking about. I had a friend worked for 11 years with General Motors, planned to go to the mission field. He came over to the church to work as an intern, and he came in one day and he said, Larry, what's wrong with wanting to be on time? And I said, nothing. He said, you know, God's word says, do all things decently and in order, et cetera, et cetera. And he was really burned. He said, I'm telling you what, if we ran General Motors like you guys run the church, we'd be bankrupt a long time ago. 
And that used to burn me. I get so mad. Somebody say that. Then I went to an AMA conference on management. And I came back and I realized it's only by the grace of God we're still in business. All of the biblical principles of administration and management that we violate is absolutely horrendous. And every principle that they were trying to urge these men to follow, I could put scripture to them. Proverbs 24.5, every sound enterprise is built by wise planning, becomes strong through common sense, and profits wonderfully by keeping abreast of the facts. Hundreds of verses on finance in scripture and management. And I began to see, you just take the laws of the land, for example. God is reproving in a very substantial way Christian groups today who have tried to define for him what faith is. Faith is go out and borrow and spend all you can, put God in the financial corner, then he's got to come through and help you out of the jam. And I've been in that, right in the heart of that. There are 40 churches right now that the Securities and Exchange Commission and IRS have merged on simultaneously. Three of them are already locked and bankrupted. It was never faith, one ounce of faith. Because God doesn't ask you and me to function on one principle at the expense of another principle. And we'll try to do this, or we'll try to justify this. Jerry was saying, very follow, was saying to me the other day in the call, he says, I want you to know something. If the Apostle Paul would co-sign a note with me, I wouldn't take it. And so, God's reproving Christians for violating principles of his word. How many churches do you know that have an audit? Some of them have an internal audit. But any church that's involved with bonds or any securities like that, the law requires a certified audit. Most churches don't even know what a general ledger is. And they run their business so absolutely slipshod. And, you know, we fought that initial tendency. Satan's trying to ruin the work of God across America. How many of you men work in a, in a profit corporation? All of you have heard of the Securities and Exchange Commission, haven't you? Anybody that has a public or private corporation lives with the Securities and Exchange Commission the day one they open up business, sell stock, or have securities. And there are certain regulations and rules and guidelines that govern the function of that, every bank, everything. The world lives with it every day. It's a regulatory agency of the government. Better read the rules, better read the laws, better get an attorney, better understand what the laws are, because when they walk in, they don't care about your personal faith or what. If you're selling securities across the country, you are under the jurisdiction of the Securities and Exchange Commission. If you have liabilities of over $250,000 in your church, profit or non-profit, you come under the jurisdiction of the Securities and Exchange Commission. It's the law. And they walk in and they look at your books and if your books are clean and you did what you're supposed to do, they walk right back out and forget you. And if they walk in and this wasn't done and that wasn't done and you say, you know what, I was trusting God about that whole thing and hoping that it all work out even though I didn't pay attention to the rules. Guess what? That's fraud. And so, we need to become responsible as Christians about our business affairs, about the way to run things. I used, you know, the most disliked board in the church is what board? Trustees. Hasn't every board you've ever known been full of the unspiritual men? Huh? Some of the greatest men I've ever known, but you know what they do? They sit there, those crazy guys, and they read the balance sheet, and they look at the bottom figure, and if your outgo exceeds your income, they say, no, we can't buy it. Lack of faith, isn't it? You see, God always operates in the dimension of faith, and it's one thing for you, for God to give you a vision and a goal and say, by God's grace, we want to do it. Now, God, if you're in it, God is just as able to supply the funds ahead of time as he is after the fact. 
And I wouldn't have talked this strongly two years ago and in the situation economically that our country is going into today, I feel very compelled to talk strongly about it. Not everybody will pay attention to me. But I'll tell you what, we have the chance right now to clean house before they come right on through. SEC never paid any attention to, to uh, nonprofit organizations two years, three years ago. They're so busy with all the other corporations, and all of a sudden, there's some multi-million dollar churches selling securities in every state of the union. So they stick their nose in and they say, oh, my land. Well, let's take one more peek. There's another one over here. Oh, my land. Well, let's get a list of all these. So 40 of them been hit right now. There, but it's far better to say, look, we discovered it. You know, we changed it last year. We're not real happy to see you boys come in, but here's what we got. Here's where we're going. Here's what we're doing. And for the most part, they'll live with you. Well, I didn't mean to get off on that extra little deal, but Bob was saying, what's wrong with wanting to be on time? So I said to him, well, what's happened recently? He said, well, let me tell you the latest. I told Margaret we had to go last night uh, out to some folks' house to have the kids ready by 6 o'clock. Going way out in the country and on deputation. And so I got home at quarter of 6 and she had him start bathing the two boys. So I sat down and started reading the newspaper. Waited till 6 o'clock and she still wasn't ready and I started pacing the floor and I kept getting more irritated and more irritated. I told him later, ladies, that he should have helped her at quarter of six and they'd have been ready. 6.25, she's ready. We drive out the road, get out on this dirt road. We go five miles down the dirt road and come to a dead end. He said, now I'm really starting to do a burn. We turn the car around, drive back up the road. Two miles up the road, a pickup comes by, throws two rocks in my windshield, cracks it in two places. He says, then I am so mad, and just then my little boy leans over the back seat and he says, Daddy, what did Mommy do wrong? He said, Larry, I don't remember what we had to eat. We had potatoes, I remember. I'm supposed to go there and talk about spiritual things. I was so mad, so upset. What's wrong with wanting to do things on, be on time? And I said, well, nothing. I said, but, you know, if you're in a circumstance that you can't control, you know how God wants you to handle that, don't you? He said, no, I really don't. I said, first of all, God wants you to recognize that he allowed this irritation for your good. So thank him. Second thing is to ask yourself, what negative trait did this irritation bring out in me? And I want to tell you, this is one of the most exciting handles to me about the Christian life that I know. So many Christians read their Bibles like you would a medical encyclopedia. You ever read a medical encyclopedia? I can never get past the second page. I have just developed so many diseases and itches that I never itched. And a lot of Christians read their Bible. They read this whole long list of sins. Oh, poor me, that's me. I'm hopeless. Or somebody goes away from the seminar, well, I just found out what all I did wrong. That's not the point. God wants you to walk with them daily. If tomorrow you and your wife have a spat, God wants you to deal with that tomorrow. Next day, it's the financial pressure, and he wants you to deal with the rights. Next day, somebody offends you, and he wants you to forgive them. Next day, got a problem with one of your children, God wants you to be surfacing that and showing you what he wants to do in your life then. God is the one who designs the situations in your life to draw to your attention how he wants to conform you to the image of his son in his order. That's why it is so dangerous when you take a brand new convert and you slap a whole bunch of don'ts on him. You know, you may have missed the real problem. I led a girl to Christ, professional ballet dancer. And when she came to the Lord, she was so exuberant, thrilled about the Lord, went back to the ballet school, started witnessing, started telling all her students about Christ, started telling the other instructors. And I'm wanting to superimpose some 
personal convictions of mine on her, but I'm thinking that maybe I ought to let her ride for a little bit because she's doing such a wild job of witnessing. And I had no freedom to talk about that because this gal was so radiant and uh, such a phenomenal witness for Christ. So I thought, I'm going to leave that alone. Instead, I'm going to start watching to see what problems, personal problems, she becomes aware of in her life. Because that'll tell me what's of greater concern to God. She came in to talk to me one day, having a real tough time with her boyfriend. Bad relationship. Non-Christian fellow. And we followed through on some steps to resolve those problems between the two of them, which was a far more significant problem, the moral problem, she came to me a couple weeks later. She says, you know what? In three weeks, I take my exam for the ballet, and if I pass this one, I'll be able to dance in any ballet uh, group in the world. And I'm really praying to God that if God wants me to do this, I'll pass. And I'm saying, oh, praise the Lord, there's my out. So I start praying too. Well, three weeks later, she came radiant. Praise God, I passed the test. God started dealing with that moral life, started dealing with her thought life, started dealing with her attitude. This was his sequence. That December, she went to Urbana, Illinois, where they have the big InterVarsity Missions Conference. She came back and she said, you know, I discovered at that conference that the big God in my life is ballet. And that God wants me to serve him. God's called me to the mission field. And the Holy Spirit in his own time and place and conviction touched her heart. She got out of it. And that's what's so exciting to me about the Christian life. Instead of me trying to play Christian psychologist or starting to say, boy, i got all these problems out here, God will deal with the ones in his order of concern. Doug Oldham's bus driver, Bill Ford. I don't know if I mentioned Bill or not. Used to be the stunt man for Have Gun or for Paladin and Have Gun Will Travel. Drove one of the chariots in Ben Hur. Became a Christian three years ago. Came to Lynchburg. After he became a Christian, he could not throw off the smoking habit. He had to have it. Withdrawals, intense pain. Did I tell you about this? And um, he came to the seminar. And God started convicting him about his relationship with him and his dad. And he was out in Colorado last year. And his dad lives up in Montana. The last time he saw his dad, he beat him up. Fist fight. Just knocked down, drag out. He's the roughest cuss I ever did meet. He spent back there in that big snowstorm, what, about 1950? Had those big blizzards out in the west. Took 300 head of cattle with calves up into the Montana mountains the last day of October and never saw civilization again till the end of April. Lost all but 27 head of steers. And I mean, he's just been there. Two horses have fallen on him, broke both of his pelvic bones and so forth. He couldn't shake this thing. And nobody, none of us knew about it. Didn't matter if we did, but he'd be driving down the highway and make his New Year's resolution, throw out that pack of cigarettes and he knew where the next gas station was, and by that time he had the cramps and stopped and got another one. Now you see, when a person can't give up a habit, it merely indicates that there's a deeper sin in his life that he hasn't dealt with. A habit on the surface is just a symptom of something else. So if it's a habit a person has, he can't break. One thing, he might be doing something wrong that he shouldn't, but it's another thing if he's bound by a habit and he can't break it. And that's never the problem. And so the Lord convicted him, and he got a rent-a-car, and he drove up to Montana, and he thought, now, my dad's always south, so the only way I'd dare even go see him is hit him at 6 o'clock in the morning when he's only got about a you know quarter of a fifth in him. And I, he tried to think how I'd do this thing. He got there late that night, and he thought, well, I'll just go up to the room and say, let's go get breakfast. And he went up there, and he knocked on the door. Dad came to the door. Bill, what are you doing here? He said, I came back 
to ask your forgiveness for my rebellion to you all these years and not honoring you as a dad as I should. And I came to ask, will you forgive me? And Bill said he no sooner got that blurted out and he glanced over at the coffee table and there was an open Bible on the coffee table. And his dad said to Bill, you know, I've been thinking a lot about you lately and I've been trying to make something out of this whole life and I decided to start reading that book there. And Bill asked his dad's forgiveness and they threw their arms around each other and cried on each other's shoulders and Bill led his dad to Christ. He took off out of that, in that old car. He grabbed that pack of cigarettes, tossed them out the window. The next place was 41 miles down the road. He said, I went zipping right on by, no pains, no withdrawal, nothing, never had it since, never had another smoke since. The God got to the real problem, which eliminated the symptoms. If we spend all our time in the symptoms, we'll have people smoke screening all the time, trying to deal with these surface things and never get to the principles they're violating in their lives. God will take do that change about. And I could illustrate this just many times over. So, it's exciting when I can walk with the Lord daily and anticipate that He is going to show me the areas that He's concerned about my life. If it's temper, impatience, this is what Bob saw. Boy, I was impatient with my children. My temper was showing, lack of sensitivity to my wife. I could have helped her, and he began to see these things. Well, the next time you get into it, what qualities... Is God giving me an opportunity to reflect? What fruit of his spirit can I demonstrate? Because if next time around I start to react and I decide I want to cooperate with God, I can have the joy of reflecting and living Christ to them. And he went back and asked his kids, his children to forgive him. He said, Bob, I just want you to know something. Your mom wasn't the one that did something wrong. It was this old daddy of yours. Will you forgive me? And he asked Margaret and the other child. Well, about three weeks later, it tends to run in series. If all of a sudden you got one irritation bugging you, the Lord seems to pull it right back in on another one. He's got a backup. Just about when you got your breath, in comes another one. And uh, certain principles tend to be more dominant in our lives than others. For example, I, I fight with personal rights far more often than I do this. A lot of things don't irritate me. But boy, when things happen to me that interrupt my schedule and my time and my plans, i got all kinds of reactions going on inside. And i got to deal with them. And my wife, you can see what she has to deal with all the time. This one. Because of me. And it really becomes a lot of fun to see what God's doing in your life. Well, Bob came in one day and he said, i got another one for you. He said, I've got lots of them for you, in fact. Came home last Saturday evening, big ice storm. They predicted the next day was going to be a hard freeze. It was during the Detroit riots. He thought, well, maybe I better not lock the doors, but if I don't, my insurance wouldn't cover it, so I, I better lock the doors. So he locked them. He came out the next morning at 9 o'clock, tried to open the door, frozen shut. He heated the match. He poured hot water in the locks. He tried everything he could do to get that car door open, and it would not open. At 20 after 9, Margaret and the two kids come walking out. They stand there for a second in the cold, and little Bobby again says, What's the matter, Dad? Can't you get the car door open? He said, I got so mad inside, I turned around, and I said, Of course I can't. Go on, all of you get back in the house. We're not going this morning. And he said, As soon as that anger came out, I just dropped my hands again. I said, Lord, you know, forgive me. So I followed them back into the house. I said, look, gang, will you forgive me for what I just said? As soon as I get the car door open, we'll all go to church, okay? He said, you know what happened? I went out, stuck the key in the door, and opened the door. On the way to church, came to a stoplight, and there was a blind man trying to get across the street. Real treacherous. Bob pulled over, helped him across the street, went on to church. They were late, so was everybody else. That night when they got home and were having their prayer time, little Bobby prayed and he says, Dear God, thank you for making Daddy late this morning so he could help the blind man across the street. And what's so beautiful about that is he and his pride, you know, could have said, Look, I've made my decision. I'm not going to change. But instead he humbled himself and before honor 
from that family. There's got to be the humility. And he made it right, and God took that mistake and turned it into his, to his glory and allowed that dad to minister to his son. Maybe something he'll never forget. And so it becomes exciting when you and I see God's hand in our lives and we begin to thank him for those irritations and we purpose to cooperate with his purposes for those wounds and those frustrations in our lives. Let's bow in prayer. Let me mention that at the end of this section that we just finished, there are two pages of insights on how to turn bitterness to forgiveness. Now, we're not going to, I'll just, don't go all of you turn into it, I'll just talk it to you here for a second. Perhaps some of the deepest types of wounds that can occur between people is when the, per- when the person you love the most hurts you. One of the most common ones is unfaithfulness. And a lot of times we as Christians make the mistake by saying, well, I'm supposed to forgive and forget. Well, first of all, that's making a, d- a liar out of yourself because nobody ever forgets anything like that. Forgiveness does not mean forgetting. Also, there is a difference between a wound in a person's life and bitterness. If somebody sticks a knife into you and pulls the knife out, hurts, doesn't it? Now, if you just put a Band-Aid over that knife wound, you say, there, it's going to take care of itself, be all healed. That's sort of like the superficial, I forgive you. But a deep wound has to heal how? Inside out. You prematurely cap it, it's going to fester, get infected. So if I choose to ignore that, then there's going to be some real consequences down the road. There's another pain that has to go with that healing process if the knife gets pulled out. You know what that is? You got to pour the antiseptic in. That hurts too. That's analogous to the forgiveness. You know, it's just as hard to die to your pride when a person has been hurt like that. And God, a person's only option is forgiveness. I do not believe that infidelity is grounds for divorce. Our Christian responsibility, if a mate has been unfaithful, is to forgive the person. The only time a divorce is going to occur is when I am so embittered and so rebellious and so hardened of heart, that is my option. But I don't believe that Scripture, Jesus was saying that unfaithfulness was a basis for divorce. Jesus said, except for fornication. You know what fornication is? Premarital relations. There were two schools of thought in Jesus' time. I realize that the Greek in the New Testament uses that word interchangeably, fornication and adultery. But there were two schools of thought in Jesus' time. One was the liberal pharisaical school, and you read in the law, it said, if she burns the biscuits, you can divorce her. Now, we have a similar law today called Las Vegas or Reno. And there was the Hillel school, which was the conservative fundamentalist position, which referred back to the Old Testament law of the dowry of virgins, that when the dowry was paid, the father was guaranteeing that his daughter was a virgin. And if that man found out during the wedding or shortly thereafter that that was not true, you know, the boys in town started talking. Or one of the common things that happens are the honeymoon confessions. I've counseled a few of those. Beautiful relationship ahead. Girl lied to the guy. But man, I just don't want to have to live with this all my life. I mean, I'm going to get it off. Whatever we got to deal with it now, just get it off and forget it. And that deception so embitters the guy. They're trying to get a fellow to talk in Pittsburgh. He's been in jail, killed his wife in a honeymoon. 
for all apparent reasons, beautiful, happy couple. Well, they can't get him to talk, but if I was a betting man, I bet that's what happened. She felt she really ought to come through and tell him the truth on the honeymoon. He just became outraged. He won't talk. They can't get him to open up his mouth. And so, if that happens, then God said Moses was given permission to give the writ of divorce. But our Christian responsibility today is to forgive that mate. Now, do you know what happens? Here's this wounded spirit. Let's come back to the basic principle. If somebody wounds me, what, what's God trying to get me to do? Huh? Love them. Like one fellow said to me, whose wife had been unfaithful several times, a repentance after each one, and then she'd do it again. And, he, and people told him, he said, you know, your priorities are so out of order. You spend no time with your wife. You spend no time with your kids. God's trying to get his attention every which way. He was so insensitive. And I said, and so God finally allowed you to go through one of the deepest of wounds that hurt so bad. You know what he's still trying to tell you? Now, that doesn't justify your wife's wrong behavior. That's her problem, her sin between her and the Lord. But you know what God's trying to say to you? You got one of two options, don't you? Either stay bitter, and bitter will ruin, bitterness will ruin you, wipe you out, or forgive her and allow the Holy Spirit that's in your spirit. What gets wounded? Our spirit. And when we'll allow the Holy Spirit to mend the wounded spirit, you see, if you forgive, that takes the poison out. It's like death then. It's a clean wound. It'll ultimately heal. Because what happens, the Spirit of God changes the spirit of that individual. And the Spirit of God can change the spirit of that mate, that wife, or the husband, whatever the situation is. And when I said that a person can forgive but never forget, you know what happens when the problem has been genuinely dealt with? My memory of that unfortunate experience becomes one of praise to God. You know what this fellow's response is? That was the worst experience of my life, but I can't thank God enough for allowing it to happen. I'm just, it's just too bad that it took all of that for God to get my attention, and he is so beautifully in love with his wife. He really is. He moved to Lynchburg, sold his two businesses and moved to Lynchburg just to be around us. Had a rededication ceremony. In Jerry's office, had a little marriage, went back off on a new honeymoon, got him the honeymoon suite over at the Hotel Roanoke, And they're just a thrilling, happy couple. And I can tell you that instance many times over. I, in fact, the, the situation that God used to start showing me this was one of my best friends, a pastor, was discipling one of the key men in his church. And, I mean, we were just praising the Lord. It was so exciting. One of the key men in his church is meeting with him one hour every Wednesday morning, going through the materials, teaching the principles, he was his Timothy. He was going to disciple. We were really excited about it. And I got a call from him one day, and he was just utterly sobbing. And he said to me, I suppose what you're going to tell me is to forgive him. And I said, what do you mean? I just discovered last night that my Timothy has been sleeping with my wife for the last two years. Now, you know what I wanted to do? I was all ready to take up that reproach. My One of my best friends, somebody do that to my friend, that dirty louse, and you know what would go on in one's mind. And it just took me a couple seconds, and I said, because I was kind of emotionally caught in the thing then, I said, you know what? I know it doesn't make sense, and you're not hearing any of the words I say, but that's the only option. I'll let you and I get together, and we'll start thinking through the thing. And Scripture says there's that wounded spirit. God can heal it. And you know, today, it was a painful experience back then, but he can praise God for it today. Loves his wife more than he ever did. She loves him more than she ever did. The Apostle Paul was murdering Christians. Now, Satan, you see, he'll try to take a sin like that and just bury you in despair. Look, you have murdered all those Christians. You are nothing but a rat. You're worthless. I mean, God ought to just run you in the ground. 
That's what Satan will try to tell you about your sin. But you know what happened to Paul? When he realized that God would forgive him for all that he did, he was so full of joy because ye shall know the truth and what? The truth shall make you free and ye shall be free indeed. And the apostle Paul got so excited and so thrilled that God forgave him and cleansed him of his sin. He said, I'm going to, because God has forgiven me, I am going to burn my life out for Christ. And the very thing that was full of guilt became the very motivating factor in his life. I stole money and lived with guilt for years. You know, when my boss forgave me and I applied God's solution to the problem instead of trying to confess it between God and me and leaving all this guilt out here, I was absolutely free. Now you know what I think about when I think of how I stole? I get excited about it. Because Christ has freed me from it and forgiven me and so has the person I wronged and I have a total freedom inside so that the memory of the sin is not a depressing and, uh, what am I trying to say? A uh, self-destructive thing. God will take that very thing, and you and I are not free from bitterness until we have been able to come all the way around in the circle and see from God's point of view how we can integrate even all of the defeats in our lives. Because once we've found the victory in each of those defeats, then we can integrate those into God's purposes for our lives. The kind of problems we run into, you know God starts bringing other people into our lives that are now facing the same problems. And you and I have a message whereby we can share with them. I know how you feel. I know what that bitterness is like. I know what that guilt's like. I used to feel that way. You did. What did you do? And you can share with them how Jesus Christ, God's Son, can cleanse them from all sin. So that's one of the, probably the deepest types of wounds. And we need to have the handles and the answers to give that kind of freedom. So uh, you can go on and read that section carefully and think through it how to look at the same situation from the Lord's point of view.